Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University, and I'm one of the hosts of the program. My guest today is Guy Axtell. Guy is professor of philosophy at Radford University. He works primarily in epistemology and metaphysics, with outreach to philosophy of science and philosophy of religion. Guy's new book is titled Problems of Religious Luck, Assessing the Limits of Religious Disagreement. It's newly published with Lexington Books. Philosophers have long pointed out the ways in which our lives are shot through with contingency. Where, when, and into what circumstances we are born is largely a matter of chance. And yet those features play determining roles in our lives. The language we speak, the customs we practice, the food we eat, as well as our tastes and ambitions, these all seem to depend largely on luck. In many cases, this is also true of our religious convictions. Hence a puzzle. It's common for religious convictions to strike us as deeply personal and formative. And those who have religious convictions also see their religious beliefs as true. This leads them often to regard the religious beliefs of others as false, or even worse. And yet once it's conceded that a person's religious conviction is often a product of circumstance, that common way of understanding religious belief from the inside, as it were, begins to look strange. In the book Problems of Religious Luck, Guy Axtell explores the implications of the realization that luck is an inexorable feature of our doxastic lives. He argues that a proper understanding of the impact of luck on our convictions can help us to navigate thorny issues with respect to religious disagreement. As usual, there's a lot to talk about. And as usual, we'll begin where we usually do, with our guest. Hello, Guy. Hi, Bob. How are you today? Great. Thanks for the invitation. Well, I'm glad to have you on the program. Um, wanted to start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks. Yeah, I was uh, born and raised around Berkeley, Northern California in the East Bay. And uh, I actually had an aunt who was a philosophy professor at UC Berkeley. But when I went off to college, I'm not sure I even realized that. And I certainly didn't know what philosophy was in any detail. But this story may be similar to many listeners, but I just found my way as a freshman into some philosophy courses, and I found it exhilarating. It excited me, and uh, it wasn't long before I had declared a major. And uh, I think my, my father was a lawyer. He knew the value of philosophy as, as a good background prep for many things. So my parents supported me. But every time I got a degree, I took a little bit of time and then decided there's nothing I wanted to do more than just to broaden and deepen my philosophical studies. Uh, So in grad school, I was probably most interested in epistemology and philosophy of science and in the American pragmatists. Uh, My dissertation really dealt with uh, Popper, Kuhn, and lactose and issues of uh, theory choice uh, and hmm. relationships between science and values. And I've remained especially interested in that, especially in the underdetermination problem and how that illuminates these, these relationships between science and values. And those, were, those concerns were really the focus of my first book, Objectivity. 
but the program in where I did most of my graduate work in Hawaii also features a lot of comparative philosophy. It, it hosts the East-West Philosophers Conference every few years. And while I wasn't initially or early on very interested in, uh, in religion, uh, that exposure to comparative thought and culture led me to be in position to teach some world religions along with philosophy courses at my first job at Nevada, Reno, and um, uh, before moving here to where I am now at Radford University. So gradually became more interested in issues like the ethics of belief, or what some people today want to call the epistemology of disagreement. Uh, I'd also been working in virtue epistemology and on questions of epistemic luck, and those interests just pretty much came together into this book project. Well, fabulous. Um, what was it like, if I may ask, uh, being a graduate student in Hawaii? <laughs> no, you may not ask. Uh, I thought it was fine, but I took a lot of grief for it when I went on the job market. <laughs> you mean just be, you, you had to travel? You had to travel all that way to the East Coast to, to the East Coast, <laughs> right? Uh, where they, they certainly did not understand. Uh, uh, you know how one can study in that environment, or at least there there were some attitudes there that uh, <laughs> st stood in the way. But yeah, your professors are two, three thousand miles away in the in the deep Pacific, so it's a little little hard. Yeah, we but we should um, maybe just take one moment to uh, be thankful that uh, the the job search process in philosophy is no longer. Uh, I mean, it, it might still be horrible in all kinds of respects, but uh, expecting expecting graduate students to travel uh, great distances to the Eastern APA between Christmas and New Year's uh, for job interviews uh, is no longer uh, commonly, no longer right. widely practiced, which is a good right, thing. Right. Um, well, good. Um, so let's uh, let's turn to the book. Um, so uh, as the title announces. Uh, the book is addressed to um, uh, problems uh, that emerge out of what you're calling religious luck. Now, I take it that um, those problems um, have analogs in what might be some more familiar to our listeners, um, some more familiar issues in moral and uh, uh, moral philosophy and epistemology um, concerning luck. Um, so maybe one place to begin would be with the larger picture. Um, can you fill in some background about some of the standing problems in ethics and epistemology that involve luck that sort of converge uh, uh, in this new book? Right, Bob. That, that background is pretty much where the book begins. Um, so firstly, I should say I didn't make up the concept. There is a, a, a literature, although a small one, that uses the concept of, of religious luck. And I say that, you know, discussed in other terms, probably many of these problems have, have uh, you know, a, a long, deep history to them. Uh, but uh, an influential article by Linda Zagzebski, a dynamic article of 1994, just titled Religious Luck, uh, was, was an initial influence for me. She was there writing as a Christian thinker, and she starts by pointing out that it's troubling that, that people might be the, the proper objects of moral evaluation, including praise and blame reward and punishment because of something that's partly, you know, outside their control and, and in that sense uh, due, due to luck. So she was referring especially to uh, the, the, the work 
of philosophers like Joel Feinberg and Thomas Nagel. Uh, and she employs a kind of a, a lack of control account of luck l- like they do. Uh, and she was applied, but she was applying that to these, these problems. She said that there are uh, a couple of theological uh, concepts within Christianity, especially grace and uh, eternal heaven and hell that she thought kind of, you know, uh, raised these problems and that there are different theological responses to them. But some of these responses, some of these models of faith, as it were, can aggravate or exacerbate problems of luck more than others. So there's she initially raised this kind of luck aggravation test and, and said that this can be helpful for theologians to compare and debate, you know, the, the relative merits of, of different uh, responses to uh, these kind, kinds of issues. Uh, so some conceptions of faith are just more strongly fideistic or otherwise mired in, in problems of religious luck than others. Uh, though, of course, you know, each kind of appears orthodox unto itself, if you will. And uh, so now go forward a decade and Duncan Pritchard is writing epistemic luck and, and mm-hmm. issues of, of the well-foundedness of belief are being discussed in terms of safety, sensitivity, and other conditions re- related to the uh, reliable etiology or causal history of belief. So people are debating the relationship between reliably formed belief and doxastic responsibility as well, acquired intellectual uh, virtues versus basic inborn uh, capacities or abilities. And I, I came to it primarily in, in this direction and, and uh, started to dawn on me that uh, what Zaisebzi was calling religious luck w- was a concept that could be approached philosophically, not, not just theologically, and that luck attributions, uh, you know, whether or not they're recognized as, as such, could also be studied by psychologists. A trait attribution theory is a, is, is a, a going field in uh, psychology and psychology of religious psychology generally. Uh, so, um, so that's pretty much... Uh, how I, I came at it. And uh, one of the early points I make in the book is that serious discussion, both on the side of moral luck and epistemic luck, only really took off when somebody put forward a specific taxonomy, right? What are mm. the different types? And that had never been done, it has not been done in religious life. And so that was a, a first thing that I wanted to do methodologically is, is to set up a taxonomy uh, that l- looks at this philosophically, but also engages uh, positions from, engages theologians as well as philosophers, psychologists as well, well as, as uh, philosophers and religious studies scholars. So I, I say that I think that uh, problems of religious luck can be a, you know, a common ground, right? A, a new set of problems that, that allows uh, each of these three, you know, diverse uh, groups of, of people and others, to uh, to engage some of these issues right. uh, and and push discussion in some new ways. So, so that's the kind of the lead up to my my in the first chapter uh, providing a taxonomy, which I don't say is exhaustive by any means, but uh, it what I have there are three kinds of luck that kind of come out of the. Uh, moral luck literature. So I have constitutive religious luck, criterial religious luck, and resultant religious luck. And then I have three that come out of the epistemic luck literature, 
and those are intervening in environmental veridic luck and also propositional religious luck. I see. So um, I want to get into um, some examples uh, uh, with respect to um, that taxonomy. Um, but just to sort of um, ask one sort of perhaps sort of big picture question. So the kind of problem that luck poses in these three domains, religion, epistemology, and moral philosophy, these are all general ways of stating um, uh, all general um, versions of the of, of a more uh, generic problem that um, it looks as if um, we are crediting and discrediting or praising and blaming one another for features over which um, the person who's the target of those attitudes uh, of praise and blame or credit and discredit um, uh, features that they have no control over. Is that is that the general problematic? Well, the moral luck literature usually engages the the lack of control account. When you move into epistemic luck, uh, I think some of the better theories are more modal uh, accounts of luck. I see. Are you right? But on the more more basic point there, yeah. So the study really focuses on two things uh, as kind of you know aggravating luck, and those are are uh, sharply asymmetric religious trade descriptions. I'm I'm saved. You're lost. All. Right. Religious value is in in uh, my religion, not not in yours. I'm, I'm intellectually, morally, uh, religiously virtuous. You are not. There's this kind of sharp, asymmetric trait descriptions, right? Where the traits are of a, a religious nature, is uh, is is one of the two. And then responses to religious multiplicity, right? Mm. Uh, that's the other thing, and, and I again I say that uh, you know although a lot of that would be within a, a, a theology, yet these are are things that go beyond uh, theology and can be studied. Right, these kinds of attributions and, and responses to uh, diversity can be studied both philosophically and psychologically as well. Great, great, great. So, um, yeah, one of the really, uh, I thought, um, one of the nice uh, features of the book, there are many, um, but uh, the taxonomy I, I found really illuminating. Um, so uh, you, you, you a moment ago sketched uh, these two broad categories and three um, uh Three kinds of luck within uh, these two broader categories. Can you um, can you explain the taxonomy a little bit, maybe with a few examples? I know that there, it can be unwieldy, so we'll <laughs> we'll sure. we'll leave some of the detail to people who go out and read the book. Right. So I'm I'm setting up the taxonomy. I'm just trying to give some examples of some of the kinds of problems that come up in the literature, things that are, are debated, and on the moral. Uh, the, the kinds of religious life that come out more out of moral concerns, like Zach Zebsi's concerns with, with grace and, the, and, and uh, you know, God's justice going together with the doctrines of maybe eternal binary heaven and hell, <clears throat> things along those lines. Let me give you just an example of, of constitutive religious life, and, and maybe it'd be better to start with a, a, a more foreign example here. But uh, think about the, the Hindu caste system and the uh, the karmic justification, right? Say you are a privileged Brahmin and I am a Shudra or an untouchable, right? 
when the law of karma, this karmic explanation is appealed to in the kind of backward looking sense, right? To explain why you are in the found condition that you are and I'm in the found condition that I am, right? That, that theological explanation as it were, you know, works to justify, to rationalize these, these differential found social conditions, right? Uh, so I, th- I think that's an example of something, you know, uh, to use karmic explanation in that way. And the, the Buddhists say this as well in their critique of um, the, the caste system, since, since Buddhists tend to, tend to reject it. And there's been this kind of widespread cast out caste uh, movement uh, in India uh, in recent decades. But you can, I, I think the listener can see how that can be thought to aggravate problems of constitutive religious luck, right? That, mm-hmm. that you are, I, I'm being told that I have been constituted by my past karma in a certain way, right? And you are constituted in this different way and that that explains, justifies, rationalizes uh, our different found social conditions, stations in life, right? And it also right. prescribes certain duties. I, I, you know, as a shooter, I'll have no upward mo- mobility, no, no uh, ability to intermarry, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I think that, that, you know, there's just one example, right? And that, that's just about constitutive religious luck. But that, that, that kind of uh, connection with a problem of religious luck can be pretty illuminating. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, it seems like there's similar problems. We don't need to go into them here, but with uh, theological concepts of, of grace and, of, for instance, the census divinitatis, Right. And right. Uh, so, you know, squaring the, the justice of any kind of religion specific doxastic requirement on, on personal salvation uh, is also uh, something that, uh, you know, but as you said in the introduction, yes, but we seem to be born in different epistemic locations. Right. And so uh, how can there be a religion specific doxastic uh, you know, condition on salvation if it's partly a matter of, of luck, whether we are even exposed to the purported, uh, you know, salvific religion. Right, right. So, and then let me let me give an example yeah. on on the epistemic side. Good. Then, if if I may, um, so yeah, in the epistemological literature, it, it seems like safety, sensitivity, failure. Are mainly what dis- distinguish uh, kind of a, a benign evidential luck. I'm just in the position to have evidence for for my beliefs, which I purport to be true, from a condition where that's compounded by what in the epistemic luck lit- literature is called, you know, uh, malign epistemic luck, uh, namely uh, the intervening kind of of uh, a Gettier case or the environmental luck kind of of a case like uh barney and fake barn county right <laughs> right and uh and so one of the things i do um pretty early in the book is to give an example to say yeah well aren't there analogs of testimonial cases cases of testimonial transfer that are really strongly similar in, in structure to uh barney and fake Barn County. After all, uh, Barney sees uh, the first the first barn he sees from the roadside. He says that's a real barn, right? And uh, so far as he was in safe conditions, 
there's no problem. And it has a, has a true belief. There's no problem with that. But um, what if Barney is enlightened to the fact that he is in fake Barn County, right? Mm-hmm. Now it seems like his his basing his belief on his just seeing what looks like a barn, what seems like a barn, is no longer a safe way to form a belief because very easily could he have gotten it wrong, right? If he had just come across a di- different barn, very easily could he have gotten a false belief rather than a true one. Uh, so I, I produce a kind of example there that's based upon testimony uh, and different uh, kind of a contrary uh, testimonial traditions. Uh, in, in the case, it's, it's kind of uh, journal articles or newspaper articles competing that are all purporting to give a true history of, of the county uh, that Tess is in. But it's, I, like a, uh, it's like a fake news case. <laughs> it's like a fake news case, yeah, right? Yeah. Where you know, different, different news boxes uh, giving different stories rather than fake barns. And it's the uptake, right? And the kind mm-hmm. of a putting trust in one particular news box, the, the, the blue instead of the red instead of the yellow, uh, that you know, provides the kind of parallel I'm trying to set up with, with the Barney case. So from my perspective, that's, that's an example that at the very least, right, uh, raises problems about uh, what I call uh, environmental religious luck. And um, so, uh, but maybe a more basic thing, I mean, I kind of end that chapter with saying, yeah, too, too often in this uh, epistemology literature, we treat evidential luck, benign luck, as one thing, and uh, you know, malign environmental luck is another, when it's, it's really just a matter of compounding, right? Right. Uh, you know, Barney, by degrees, might go into a situation where uh, the reliability of, of citing Barnes is, 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 you know, becomes uh, questionable, becomes doubtful, right? And where we have to say that he can't really um, trust his perception because he's now in an inductive context, right? And so it becomes inductively risky for him to, to trust his eyesight in, in such cases, right? And similarly, then, by analogy, I say it's, it's a matter of inductive risk when uh, environmental uh, luck uh, is in place, right? And so we, we need to uh, ask this question all the time about what is it that distinguishes uh, merely benign evidential luck, which you know, we're likely to claim for ourselves anytime right. we think our beliefs are true, right? From where we have to conceive, wow, you know, the, uh, myself or, or the agent in a hypothetical case is in a, an inductive context and can't ignore the inductive risk, right? And unless they are basing their beliefs in conformity with inductive norms, right? Inductively strong ways of, of forming belief then uh, I'm sorry, but your belief is compounded by malign luck. Right. And so um, one, of the, one of the features of your um, fake news case, and just to run through the case very quickly, and, you know, I'm forgetting the name of the character in the example. Yes. Tess, good, right. A good friend <laughs> um, of Barney's. Yeah, yeah. So Tess um, 
uh, is visiting uh, uh, the the Barn County and um, notices that there are three local newspapers, each purporting to give accurate information about um, uh, the history or the background or the goings-on in the county. And um, crucially, for the example, um, each newspaper says of itself that it's the only one that's giving trustworthy information and that um, those who um, are, you know, consulting either of the other two uh, newspapers are being profoundly misled. Um, so it it looks as if this introduces then, this case introduces um, a feature uh, that um, might be uh, more prevalent in the religious belief cases where it does look like it's not uncommon for religious beliefs to have a kind of exclusivist edge to them, right? Um, can you tell us a little bit uh, that that is that part of what it is to be convicted uh, or to be a, a member of a particular faith community is not only to affirm certain uh, religious propositions or engage in certain practices, but also to adopt an assessment of people who are outside the community. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about religious exclusivism, which is, I take it, one of the um, one of the phenomena of religious life that's being targeted uh, in the book and, and, and challenged uh, by means of this analysis of the role that luck plays in forming our religious identities? Yes, that, that's right. I do think that the degree of I call it the degree of contrariety in disagreement right. is very epistemically significant, right? In the epistemology of disagreement literature, a lot of times they, they just talk about um, disagreement in, in a kind of generic sense and, and ignore this I call symmetrical contrariety, right? right. Uh, or in other words, similar belief forming processes, at least look, look, looking at the at the uh, you know everyday naturalistic ca- causes of belief, early education, these proximate causes that we can all agree, early early education, etc., and then the um, the degree of of contrariety or, or mutual denial that comes out of that. So uh, the book is very concerned with uh, looking at at the epistemology of, of disagreement in terms of the specific problem of you know, how you get from kind of etiological symmetry, right, uh, or, or, or symmetry of, um, of uh, belief uptake to uh, polarized and polemical doctrines, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's a, a kind of a basic concern, and again, why religious exclusivism emerges as, as a key target, right, as, as you know, that, the exclusivist attitudes towards uh, religious multiplicity emerge as especially mired in problems of religious luck of, of one kind or another. Right. Um, so, but, but you've got a, um, a chapter in which you, there's a particular variety of religious exclusivism that um, you think is actually incoherent, not merely um, uh, suboptimal or you know, unfortunate, but actually um, incoherent. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that variety of exclusivism? Because it also struck me, again, as an outsider, as um, uh, a variety of uh, exclusivism that's common. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Sure. Well, I, I think this is really interesting. I mean, you're, you're, Traditional forms of salvific exclusivism, right? That all all salvific value uh, isn't a religion, one religion, are are particularist. So, uh, and and there is a term in the literature, particularist exclusivism, right? It's Mm -hmm. religious specific exclusivism. Uh, if you think about uh, going back 100 years to the authors of of the the fundamentals, right? In the the start of that um, fundamentalist. uh, movement in the early 20th century uh this this was definitely their view right and there's no no mm-hmm. doubt that they would fill in the name christianity there there for the one uh salvific uh r- religion but um um un- under pressure maybe of um you know liberal protestantism and and, and various uh <clears throat> developments in uh philosophy religion uh, that that view has become less popular, and and if you pay attention to language, you can see that there's actually two ways that uh, a self-described exclusivist will answer this question of you know who who is within their moral intellectual rights to uh, take a relig- uh, take an exclusivist uh, attitude or response to religious multiplicity. The first is this particularist way. But yeah, far more often you hear today a kind of mutualist exclusivism, right? right? Uh, and uh, so if you pay attention to language, you, you can actually see this. I don't, I don't think this has uh, been, been recognized enough, but some of the best known uh, self-described exclus- exclusivists, those, those who others look to, right, to for their arguments, like Paul J. Griffiths, uh, right. he's a self-described post-liberal and the, and the post-liberal line on this is um, pretty much a kind of mutualist exclusivism. In other words, he says he does not defend just the attitudes of Christian exclusivism, but structurally similar forms of religion-specific exclusivism. Exclusivism, he says, makes belonging to the home religion essential for salvation, uh, while inclusivism says that belonging to the home religion is not necessary for salvation, that belonging to an alien religion might suffice. So he's using these formal terms, right, of, of home and alien rather than, than filling that. He's allowing the individual to fill it in, of right. course, right? But the defense is really a mutualist uh, defense in the sense that he's defending the full rationality, right, of the, the mutualistic exclusivists or, or the exclusivists in any, uh, in any religious tradition, essentially, right? Uh, and, and so I just want to say, I'm, you know, I'm happy to accept his definitions, first of all, because he makes this kind of clear, uh, exhaustive dichotomy where exclusivism is saying that also, vific value is in the home religion, and inclusivism is just the negation, the denial of that, right? Um, and uh, so, thinking about this, this difference and how it hasn't really come up in, in discussions in an explicit way, uh, led me to um, I'd say, well, well, wait a minute. I, I, first of all, I think mutualist exclusivism is a funny animal, and I want to get to that. But but first, how about a uh, a dilemma that would, would would hit both sides. So, in my my chapter five, where m- most of these dilemmas for uh, exclusivists are uh, in the book, I come up with this um, religious value focused constructive d- 
dilemma, right? So a constructive mm. dilemma, if I can if I can run you through this, constructive dilemma is, is of the form if A then C and if B then D, but either A or B, therefore either C or D, right? Right. And, and so so here let me just run you through this. So my, my first premise is if exclusivism is understood on mutual premises, then God's divine judgment is sensitive to the reasonableness of persons in maintaining multiple religious ways of life. And so God might well confer religious value on multiple religious ways of life. And this, the second, if exclusivism is understood on particular premises, then God's divine judgment is not sensitive to the reasonableness of persons in maintaining multiple religious ways of life. And so God's divine judgment makes personal salvation a matter of religious luck. Right. And then the, the third uh, but God's divine judgment is either sensitive or not sensitive to the reasonableness of persons in maintaining multiple religious ways of life. And the conclusion for, therefore, either God might well confer religious values on multiple religious ways of life, or God's divine judgment makes personal salvation a matter of religious luck. And so the first word of that dilemma in the conclusion is non-exclusivist, and the second looks like it's a moral problem with God. Is that how the argument runs? Well, it's two two forms of of, of uh, exclusivism: the mutualist right. and, and the particularist. I see. So, uh, so I'm putting each on a different different horn, right? right. In that, right? Uh, and uh, so that that's pretty much how it how it runs there, right? And then, and then later in the chapter, um, I say, well, but but let's look more closely at, at mutualist exclusivism because, you know, um, it, it it seems odd that you're both affirming and denying the rationality or or the virtue of people. You know, in the one sense, they seem to be saying any person of any home, whatever they call the home religion can rationally, reasonably be taking an exclusivist attitude towards religious multiplicity. On the other hand, they seem to be saying right, <laughs> that, that, that God, God is somehow uh, you know, uh, making his judgment on, on something other than that, right? because it's really one specific religion uh, that is self, salvific. So, um, so uh, you know, I, I kind of ask, well, um, you know, if, you, if you're dividing rationality and truth in, in this way, mutualism seems to create this gap between uh, rationality and truth, and maybe that that's as it should be, right? But uh, what are we then saying about about God's judgment? I mean, if he's not, if he's saying these people, uh, if God then is is allowing the people are intellectually, morally, and by their own lights theologically virtuous, uh, then you know, on what grounds is he uh, judging them? Uh, nevertheless, damnable, right? Is right. is that is that again uh, just? The lack of having the right religion—that that seems to be the quandary that that mutualist uh, exclusivism puts us in. Right. Um, so, yeah, it does seem like um, it seems like a strange attitude to have in the from the first personal point of view. Right. It seems um, uh, it, it would be difficult to understand. Um, one's own conviction from the inside in that way, because one has to see oneself as subject to the same kind of um, 
belief forming problems <laughs> as the people who've got it wrong, right? Right, right. I mean, I, I think what's what, what's going on here is is that you know this mutualist exclusivism is, is kind of part and parcel of the the post liberal approach, the, the newer um, apologetic right d- defense of of uh, uh, exclusivist attitudes. And so it's it's going to try to be a little bit more enlightened than old style particularist was, uh, but it's also at the same time right trying to kind of normalize right mutualist response uh, uh, normalize exclusivist responses to religious multiplicity right and to normalize a kind of a polarized and polemical discourse right a, a purely maybe you know negative apologetics right from one religion to another right and and so I, I think that there's value from philosophical perspective in, in challenging this kind of normalization right of uh, a kind of a you know cycle of co-radicalization mm. right or, or polarized polemical discourse and so yeah I, I really want to argue that while this was supposed to fix the problems with old style particularist exclusivism it really doesn't it, it, it merely uh, you know collapses back into the particularist or else shows itself as, as uh, you know conceptually inco- incoherent. Uh, so this big picture of we're kind of we're we're just gonna accept that we're equally rational in a kind of mutual disrespect of, of one another is I think something right. that you know deserves uh, that that kind of uh, criticism you know for for the same kind of reasons that in your book with Scott Aiken you you um, try to disabuse us of, of these common sense things that yeah, common sense uh, rhetorical ploys that hold not just in religion, but you know, also in the other areas of our controversial views, ethics, philosophy, politics, where we you know, can dogmatize and, and, and assert a kind of a simple truth and then a kind of a no reasonable opposition. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you've read that book. Um, <laughs> um, so, is this related to what you you call in the in the chapter after the the enemy in the mirror problem? Um, right. So, I, a, a lot of the book is focused on on uh, some of the you know characteristics of fundamentalism and the comparative. Um, uh, viewpoint. Uh, there is a, a, a field of comparative fundamentalism, and, and I want to say it, it's important. Philosophers haven't made a lot of contributions to it, uh, but but all of these, many of these problems with exclusivism seem to be um, due to a kind of uh, uh, counterinductive thinking. I call it right. So mm-hmm. so as as I move from part one to part two of the book. I say, yeah, problems of religious luck uh, are, are illuminating, but you know, luck is an unwieldy concept, and, and a concept that's more amenable to formal study, both by philosophers and, and logicians and, and uh, social scientists, is uh, inductive risk. Uh, and so, inductive risk is the risk of getting it wrong in an inductive context, right? Mm-hmm. And counterinductive thinking is the kind of thinking that um, it, in, uh, 
bring, takes on the most inductive risk, right? It's saying there's a pattern, for instance, there's a pattern of falsehood, but, and I recognize this, the exclusives will certainly see a pattern of, you know, uptaking the uh, uh, testimonial tradition of one's home culture uh, and attribute falsehood to that. Uh, but somehow, even though I am, uh, you know, I'm taking mine in the same basic way, my beliefs in the same basic way, uh, the pattern stops here, right? Uh, right. You know, somehow uh, that same pattern of unreliability, lack of safety, et cetera, right, uh, is is not the case in mine where, um, you know, I, I, I get true beliefs from that. So counterinductive thinking is something that comes in for a lot of uh, analysis in the book, and a big, big part of that. I mean, a uh, a key indicator of of, of that is a, a kind of um, uh, bias mirroring, right? Or, or this, mm-hmm. this I, I call it this idea of the enemy in the mirror. In fact, that was the title of a book of, uh, of one book on comparative fundamentalism, right? How is it that, especially in the Abrahamic traditions? we get this kind of mutual uh, intolerance, this mutual assertion of, uh, you know, uh, exclusive truth or exclusive salvation. Uh, of course, that, that happens in other religions be- besides the Abrahamic ones, but those are, you know, uh, the, the problem seems especially a- a- acute there today and uh, historically in, in the Abrahamic uh, tradition. So the enemy in the mirror, I say, you know, I, it would be best if, if we could, instead of creating them, you know, recognize them, right? Recognize uh, how formally similar, right, other, other religions sometimes are. The post-liberals tend to have a, um, what I see is a, a very one-sided view that focuses primarily on, you know, the uniqueness of the teachings of their religion, right? And so it's it's focused on the content and on and on the claims of the uniqueness of of the content, right? But at the same time, uh, this makes it too easy to ignore formal similarities, right? right? Uh, formal symmetries, right? And so again, this idea of symmetrical contrariety or or you know polarized and polemical contrariety that arises from self same or, or similar belief forming. Uh, processes, right? That's that's what really uh, interests me, and and I think that that's what you know goes together with a lot of what uh, in the the literature and the, and the empirical studies on religious radicalization and violence. You get these kind of you know bias perception conflict spirals, right? These these spirals of co radicalization. Um, and and so that to me is kind of yeah the the construction of uh, you know enemies in the mirror and the big uh, theme of the book is you know, you know can uh, fundamentalist thinkers be be brought to recognize their own you know, kind of you know, mirror images in, in, in others right instead of seeing them as just wholly other whole, wholly different uh, and how how can we you know collectively learn uh, to not just to recognize but to erase these enemies in the mirror. Right, and that's and the key there, uh, I take it, is the um, the understanding or taking on board the understanding that um, a feature of one's own religious conviction has it goes beyond the content of one's beliefs or commitments 
and um, includes uh, some recognition with uh, regard to the processes by which one arrived at those convictions. Is that right? Right. Uh, you know, just just kind of all I'm asking for here is a kind of a balance between right. content uniqueness and the focus on that, and and uh, you know attention to similarity, right? Because when you look at the proximate causes of of uh, belief, right, they're 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 pretty much everyday things like early childhood education, right? Uh, Acculturation. Uh, enculturation, right? Mm-hmm. The politics of religious identity, you know, uh, many things along these lines. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's self-serving then for uh, the exclusivists to uh, ignore all of that in favor just of this, you know, kind of tunnel vision on uh, difference, right? right. Uh, and so this, it, it's kind of goes together with, you know, the, the reduction of, uh, you know, difference to falsity, right? Uh, right. This kind of easy inference from my beliefs are true to yours are contrary to mine to therefore yours must be false, right? right. That uh, reduces, uh, you know, very complex matters to, uh, yeah, something, again, very similar to what, what you talk about with simple truth and no reasonable opposition. Right, right, right. So um, then to bring this around, which I take is the sort of uh, the, 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 the big theme that looms uh, throughout the book um, is what, if you'll permit me to um, uh, modify a, a, a Rawlsian term, uh, reasonable religious pluralism is the uh, is the guiding uh, issue, um, and y- your your concern mainly um, with figuring out uh, a metric uh, or a way of um, uh, measuring uh, sort of the degree of fideistic orientation. Right, you're you're concerned with um, uh, once we take on board these points about the problem of luck sort of uh, um, in, in being involved in our belief forming processes and even the contents of the beliefs that we form, there is this issue about, you know, how do we moderate um, strongly fideistic orientations? Cause those tend to be the more um, exclusivist. Is that right? Right. Um, right. So in, in the big picture, I mean, I've, I've talked a lot about uh, critique of exclusivism but uh, my overall, my ethics of belief is, is permissivist, right? And so I'm really only, I'm, I'm not making any kind of uh, broad criticism of, of, of theism or any other uh, overall orientation, right? It's really focus, I call it a focus du jour argument um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, against religious exclusivism. Uh, and um, so, it, yeah, my own pragmatism, I guess it is, you know, leads me to view permissible all such uh, faith ventures, right, religious faith ventures that do not centrally aggravate problems of religious luck, to go back to Linda Zagzebski's uh, original paper. And so I, I am a, you know, a defender of Rawlsian uh, religious uh, pluralism, you know, recognize uh, that, you know, we all, we all start somewhere, right, that, that those right. problems of of the epistemic location, right, and the contingency of so many of our, our nurtured beliefs are are just kind of basic to to the human condition, right? And so I don't see uh, you know those kinds of problems in any way 
uh, you know, undercutting uh, the legitimacy uh, of belief, uh, but only when uh, they're compounded by certain specific right uh, problems, markers uh, of bias, right? And uh, so that's where I, I do try to get specific about that, that there's a scale. Every religion has a kind of a fideistic minimum uh, in, this, in the sense that you know, very few people would, would take the religion as simply uh, something to be inferred from you know, empirical evidence. Uh, faith always goes, goes beyond um, uh, evidence in, in, some, in some sense. Um, but uh, those attitudes uh, associated with with uh, fideism, and I use fideism in a non-pejorative, try to use it, right. in a, you know, strictly uh, so- social scientific sense, and primarily a, a descriptive sense. But uh, there's definitely a scale there, you know. There's kind of a, a moderate fideism, and then and then radical fideism, right? Where the we're at the radical or strong end. Uh, attitudes, uh, you know, tw- towards science and reason itself become become quite quite negative, uh, and uh, so I, I try to highlight you know a lot of the markers of uh, strong fideism, and and also to uh, you know say why it so seems so connected with a kind of uh, uh, self exemption from right inductive norms, inductive inductive reasoning. Um, I part of this goes to my uh, thinking about Wittgenstein, right? Who's uh, right. lectures on uh, religious belief uh, were influential on, on me as on many people. And uh, one of my chapters is, is kind of named after a, a passage there. Uh, the pattern stops here because Wittgenstein thinking about the, the differences between everyday and religious beliefs says, uh, no, uh, there it will break down. The pattern stops here, right? No induction, <laughs> fear. That is, as it were, part of the substance of the belief, right? And uh, so I you know, highlight this kind of self-exemption, uh, counter-inductive thinking that, that, that seems to me so strong in, in what I term strong fideism. And then I uh, talk about it. I try to start from uh, actual scales of religious orientation, right, uh, in use by psychologists of, of religion, but also to add these kind of points in to, to say that we can, uh, we'd have a more comparative scale and a more useful scale if we would, uh, you know, kind of connect these these uh, ideas uh, that stem from philosophy of luck and, and risk uh, to, to our you know, psychological studies and religious orientation. Well, great. So the the book ends then with a, a, a related point, perhaps an extension of um, that general call for a more fine-grained um, metric of um, fideism, um, and that you think that um, – the cognitive science of religion and people working uh, at the intersection of religious studies and cognitive science um, will be helpful uh, in discerning um, the limits of uh, religious pluralism. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the cognitive science? Uh, uh, in fact, you you, outla- you you lay out sort of a, a kind of a program uh, for uh, thinking about religious difference in light of um, what we're able now 
to study uh, with cognitive science. Right. So um, I term my view the inductive risk account, and it, it's got two sides. And, and mainly we've been talking about the normative side, right? The, and, and this is, is foremost in the book. The subtitle is uh, Assessing the Limits of Reasonable Religious Disagreement, right? right. So uh, these, these kinds of issues we, we've been talking about, you know, the censure or, or, or critique of exclusivist attitudes, the demand for justification of, you know, strong, sharply asymmetric trait descriptions, even if they're, you know, originally cast in, in theological terms, um, you know, all of these questions dealing with the ethics of belief, uh, and even the distinction between benign and malign luck, right? Uh, yeah. Question about the moral harm of, of theological in, intolerance, right? And the doubtful worthiness of, of a, uh, a, a of a worship of a God that would, you know, kind of play dice with souls, right? All of those are, are normative uh, questions. And, um, but that's only, only one side of the inductive risk account. The, the other side is uh, trying to engage uh, empirical psychology of religion, cognitive science of, of, of religion. And uh, so the inductive risk account has, has this kind of explanatory and descriptive side, which we, we started to get into in talking about how do we measure, right? How can, how can we mm-hmm. give more fine detailed measurements along a, a scale of, you know, from religious rationalism to moderate fideism to strong uh, fideism? And um, so you're right. Um, I think that the cognitive science of religion can, can help to give a lot of, of light on some of these same questions. Uh, they do treat uh, religious belief, you know, from a more formal and generic perspective, which I said brings brings balance, right, uh, to the emphasis of the religious believers themselves, uh, just on the content unique uniqueness of their of their beliefs. Um, so in that sense, it can, but you also have to keep the normative and the descriptive explanatory sides, right, or issues distinct, right? So it's, it's not as if uh, the cognitive science of religion directly contributes to the limits of uh, the question of the limits of, of reasonable religious disagreement, because reasonable is, is a normative uh, term there, but it can you know, shed light on, on the explanatory relevance of, of measures of inductive risk. It can propose uh, different hypotheses. So uh, as, as you mentioned at the end of the book, I propose a kind of a new research program that a lot of cognitive science of religious religion uh, authors, uh, researchers have focused on uh, the appeal of minimally counterintuitive ideas. And right. my program says, well, what would happen at the intersection of that and my own focus on counterinductive thinking, right? So that's that's where the the book ends with kind of a proposal that would bring again interested theologians, psychologists, and philosophers to talk about these issues of, of uh, risk, risky uptake of, of belief. And can I ask, is the cognitive science um, well suited to um, talking about? What we might think of radical uh, of as radicalization of religious belief. It seems that um, that's one of the <laughs> that's one of the things that maybe um, it would be really important to know more about is um, how 
even strongly fideistic orientations become sort of radicalized in the political sense. Right. Uh, well, I, I know that there are quite a few psychologists and, and a, a strong and growing interest in religious radicalization and violence. And it overlaps with cognitive science of, of religion. Uh, but there, there are probably different subgroups there, right? Sure. Some are, are more interested in, in uh, general evolutionary explanations and some in, in more specific, uh, you know, uh, conditions, right? What, what make conditions ripe for the politicization of religious belief, right? right. And, uh, for, you know, these kind of cycles of co-radicalization, et cetera. Well, Guy, you've been um, very generous with your time, and it's a cruel question to ask somebody who's just published a fabulous new book. Um, but uh, what's your next project? Well, thanks for asking. Yes, <laughs> thank, thanks again for having me on. Uh, I think I will stay with these, some of these same issues. I, I would like to go in a more specific and more general direction with, with them. More specific just kind of as, as we were talking about, maybe more into the uh, political aspects uh, um, of you know, religious apologetic strategies and uh, you know, issues of um, radicalization, um, tying that into you know, doing more empir empirical studies um, myself. And then in a more general way, uh, certainly you know, a lot of these concerns about uh, the impact of epistemic location, the, the time and place in which we live, right? The impact of that on all of our nurtured beliefs, right? And so uh, I want to do, right, I think my next book will be on something like an epistemology for our controversial views, where right. that would encompass religion, but also talk more about philosophic disagreement, right? And political disagreement, and disagreement over ethics, right? And bringing, uh, for instance, some of the research from um, Jonathan Haidt and, and others right. uh, about, you know, uh, how good people can disagree, right? Uh, <laughs> on politics, pol politics and religion. Uh, so those are a couple of different directions, projects I have uh, on the table. Well, Guy, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really, really great to talk to you about your new book. Thanks, Bob. Much appreciated. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for our discussion of Guy Axtell's Problems of Religious Luck. It's just been published by Lexington Books. Thanks for listening to the program. Bye for now.